see all of you. Breakfast was really good. Dinner was really good last night. I love me some pork chops. So I'm glad that you made it this morning. Hopefully you got some rest. I'm still on East Coast time, so my sleep is a little whacked. Um, but I was able to uh, talk to my kids, my wife, um, this morning, so it was really good catching up with them. Um, let's begin. I'm excited to spend time with you as we share the word. I think it's that one, that's all. Good? Okay, good, okay. <laughs> um, now I wanna share a passage this morning, um, but I think it's gonna remind us about that if we're to live abiding in Christ, he has to abound in our life. And Pastor Ulysses and I were talking about last night, um, kind of going through this idea of um, abide and abound. And so uh, we were talking about this, this thought that when we are abiding in Christ, so let's say this is not a great image of John Christ, but if we are, this is Christ and this is us, when we are abiding in Christ, then we abound in everything that is about Christ, love and grace and mercy and power and all of those things. But in order, at the same time, in order for us to abide in Christ, he needs to abound in all of our life, in all areas of life. He needs to encompass all areas of our life. And so I want to share a passage with you where Jesus um, has an encounter with someone concerning how he wants to abound in this person's life. Um, you know, many times in our Christian journey, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus wants to always abound as our greatest possession. And the reason that's important is because whatever or whoever else becomes our greatest possession can end up possessing us. And so the passage I want us to go to is in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22, very um, known story about a rich young ruler. Um, the title of today's sermon is Our Greatest Possession. And so we begin in verse 17. Uh, the scripture says, and as he, Jesus, was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or in other words, what more deed do I have to do? And Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, Jesus continues, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus in verse 21 responds, responds looking at him and loved him, says to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Verse 22 ends like this. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now I'm going to approach this passage now with one, two, or three, or four points, but I want to really go through it verse by verse and really extract as much as we can from this passage and see what is God, what is Jesus confronting this man with, and then what is my God be speaking to us this morning. And so I want you to notice how verse 17 begins. 
It begins by telling us that Jesus was setting out on his journey. And this detail is very important, especially in light of the command that Jesus gives this man in verse 21 to follow him when this man is in, interrupts Jesus on his way. And so verse 21 begins what this journey that Jesus has set out um, to do, and he's interrupted on his way by a man. Now Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem from Galilee, and he's on his way to suffer and die and be crucified. And, um, and, he's, and while he's on his way to give his life for your sins, my sins, the sin of this man that is interrupting him, a rich young ruler, which is the way this man is described in Matthew and in Luke, uh, runs up to Jesus and kneels before him. Now, how this man is described is very important. First, the Bible tells us that he is, uh, he, uh, he's a rich, he's young, he's a ruler, so he's young. He's probably about 20 to 35 years old. Anybody here under that bracket? <laughs> Most of you fall under that category, 20 to 35 years old. Um, this man is also rich, which he's probably, he probably came from an affluent family, uh, well-established family, uh, prestige in the community. Um, he was also a ruler meaning that he probably was a young Pharisee. He had prominence and influence in Jewish society. Um, in fact, uh, he also knew the law and was strictly learning to practice that law. In fact, uh, in verse 20, uh, Jesus affirms this young ruler's knowledge of the law, and which is why this young ruler in verse 20 feels like he has kept all of the law since he was a kid, which, which also means that he grew up learning the law and has been formally trained to interpret that law. Now, whenever we hear rich, young, and a ruler, all the ladies are like, that's my man. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> The moment a rich young ruler walks through those doors, you're like, Senor, Lord, thank you for your provision. Hallelujah. Now, I think when I think about a rich young ruler, I think many of you are like this young guy. Many of you could be similar to him. Many of you have grown up in the church. Many of you have grown up practicing the Christian way of doing things. But you have to take it a step greater. Where Jesus abounds and entrusted your whole life to Jesus. You gotta take it there. Not just your life after death, which is what, see, for most of us Christians, we trust Jesus, we trust, in G, we trust our eternity in Jesus, but we typically don't trust our life now in Jesus' hands. And we'll discuss a little bit more further, but it's more than just eternity, it's now. Another way of asking you that question is, is he your greatest possession? And does he possess all of you? And that's a question that I want us to be asking ourselves. Now, I have to be honest with you. I can't say that I've surrendered all that I am to the Lord. I wish I could say that. First, I don't know all that is in me that I need to surrender. 
There's some things that the Lord will not reveal to me already. But there's some things that he has been revealing that sometimes I just hold back. And the same thing might be with you as well. There's some things that God reveals to you that you know. That if we were to sit, have a one-on-one heart-to-heart, you can deny it all you want. You know. But there's some things that you might not know because in your growth in the Lord, he has to reveal those things to you. You need to kind of grow into that. But I haven't surrendered all things to the Lord. So I'm... This message is just as much as for me as it is for you. And, 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 as, and as, as much as I wrestled through this passage, cried through this passage, repented through this passage, I, I preach it. And even now I'm thinking, oh, Lord, I still have to surrender that. I know, I remember. But I want him to show me more. I want him to reveal those things more because I want to glorify him more. I want him to abound in all of my life because I really want to abide in him. And I really pray that there is the heart that you have as well because in the end we just want him to be glorified and that's what he wants so he wants to be glorified through us now the, the verse continues and be, saying that this man kneels before jesus and the fact that he does that and calls him good teacher it means that he is genuine and sincere about his question he really, really wants to know what else he needs to do to inherit eternal life. In other words, he's not being pretentious here. He's not really lying about this. He really wants to know, okay, what more do I have to do? Because the thing about this rich and rule is that despite of being so sure that he has kept all the commandments since he was a kid, deep down he knows Something is still missing. Something ain't right. He needs to find out. No matter all the good things he's doing and how perfectly and genuinely he's obeying the commandments of God, he still feels like there's something more to do. And many of you either feel like like that or have been feeling like that for a long time. You've grown up in church. You've been coming to this church, maybe to another church. You've been a Christian. You're trying to follow the commandments of God. You're trying to live as a Christian. But somehow, something is still missing. Something doesn't feel right. And you're trying to figure out what's missing. Don't I have Jesus? But something is still missing in your life. Because you go around trying to fill it with all these different things that are still leaving you empty and you're still feeling like something is missing, just like this one guy. And you're trying to, uh, you're asking your question, what else do I need to do? What else do I need to believe? How, do, how else do I need to believe? Because something is missing. Something is missing. So Jesus begins in verse 18 to address this guy's heart. And beginning in verse 18, he wants to address your heart as well. Jesus responds to this young man's question about what more good do I have to do in a different way with a question about who is good you see the shift Jesus is digging into this man's heart he's first confronting him with his standard and definition of what is good for this young man what is good is based on what he can do but Jesus is shifting He's changing that. He's addressing who is good. Because Jesus is contrasting that, contrasting this man's standard of goodness with God's standard of righteousness. 
which is based on trusting in who he is. There's a difference. So he wants to reframe the question. You're already starting with the wrong question. This is the right question you need to be asking. And many of you, you need that shift. You have to change that mindset because you have made up yourself what it takes to be a good Christian or what a good Christian should look like. And many of us have grown up thinking, this is what a good Christian is. You grow up in church, you go and study, and you do really good in school, you get a really good job, you make a lot of money so you can give something to the church, you come to church once, maybe twice a month, on a Sunday, you do just enough so you can feel good about it, you help your parents, that is a good Christian, that is a good citizen. Some of you might take it even further, as long as I read the Bible once in a while, as long as I pray and communicate with God once in a while, I will be a good Christian. And I wanna, I wanna have this heart-to-heart heart heart talk with you when it comes to that because Jesus is not interested in you being a good Christian. In fact, he's not interested in you being a great Christian. He wants you to be a real one. The way he defines it. The way where it benefits you because you are really abiding in him and he abounds all of your life. He wants you to be a surrendered Christian. One that follows him. Someone who does not trust in the ability to do good, but who has placed your trust in him and who he is. Someone that trusts not just your eternity, but your whole life in him. You see, your trust has to begin with this life that you're living right now before that eternal life comes. See, Jesus doesn't ask you to trust him with our eternity only. He doesn't just ask us that. But also with the life we have here and now, and this is why. Because eternal life does not start when we die, it starts now. John 17, 3 says that this is eternal life. Anybody know it? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you that means that the moment you believe in Jesus and you sign on that dotted line and you trust Jesus for eternity, eternity starts now, right now. That means that your trust needs to start here. It needs to start now, not just for the life that is to come. And this is what I found with people at our church, and I have a feeling that it's similar in this church because it's the same age bracket, similar demographic. Okay, let me set some some. Let me uh, um, share this for my heart. <coughs> at, at, at the church that God has given me the privilege to serve, there are many people here in this one. They struggle with feeling meaningless. They struggle with life. And I talked a little bit about this yesterday, talking with some people yesterday about this. But this is the thing. They come to church, they're trying to find the Lord, they're trying to engage in community, they're trying to find really true, meaningful relationships and fellowship. They really want to really finish well, study well, make money, and, 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 and save a lot of money, right? And then they start going on a lot of vacations, right? Because they want to explore the world and they want to live life. And this is kind of what they want to do. But even though they're doing all of it, they're doing all of that, I don't know if it happens here, I'm pretty sure it does. That our church, that people go on vacation together, like 10 or 15 people, they just, Let's go hang out to Mexico, Greece, I don't know, Japan, and let's go all the way to you just go and you have a blast, you have fun. Ooh, baby, this is life. And yet, you're still empty. 
But this is what happens. You keep doing it. So what do you do? You go on more vacation. You give your life less to the Lord. And guess what? You still feel empty. Something is still missing. And so you're still doing the same thing, expecting different results. Now, I don't want to tell you what that means, right? <laughs> but you know what that means. And Jesus is wanting to address the heart. You've got to do something different. Because you're still trying to hold on to your life and the life that you think is best for you. And what Jesus is saying is, that is not life. I'm life. And until I abound in all of your life, and you change your mindset, the way you're thinking, you're still going to feel empty. And he's confronting this guy. I love you, but what you're doing, that ain't it. And what you're doing, sorry for my ghettoness, that ain't it. <laughs> he wants to address your heart because he loves you like he loves this guy. Now, let's continue verse 19. Because this guy is not getting it. And I was praying for you this morning. And I was praying for my, our church. I was praying for pastors because uh, I'm really trying. I'm trying to get emotional. I don't know how this is going to sound. Can I share with you one of the saddest things that pastors struggle with? And they, they, they know where you are and they're telling you the truth if you're not listening. That's hard. It's hard when sometimes you don't trust the shepherd that God has given you. I, I promise you, Pastor Lisa did not and I didn't talk about this. I promise you. You can believe me or not. That's up to you. But I'm sharing this from my heart to you because it's hard to see you going on this path and we're trying to tell you the truth and you might not like it, it might not sound good, but we're trying to help you have life. And this guy, he's not getting it. And some of you might leave this place without getting it. And my prayer is that you will get it before you leave. But some of you might not because some of you might be like, I have the right to do whatever I want. And you know what? At the end it's true, but that right has consequences. And you don't want to say, you don't want to live those consequences, but you're going to have to. Because all decisions have these consequences. This man is not getting it. And Jesus loves him. And he's confronting him. He's confronting him. And in verse 19, it tells us that he's not getting it. And so Jesus begins, uh, it wants to show him that he's not as good as he thinks he is. He doesn't have it figured out as he thinks he does. I want you to pay close attention to what Jesus does in this verse. Notice that Jesus does not mention the first four commandments of the Decalogue that have to do with how this man relates with God. Now, just as a refresher, if you remember, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not create for yourself a carved image, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. When Jesus is talking about the commandments, he does not talk about this. He doesn't even mention this. But instead, he focuses on the other six commandments, which are related to people. He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now the question is, why does Jesus do this? Because these are precisely the commandments that this rich young ruler is convinced he has kept as he was a kid. 
And Jesus wants to show him that his own goodness, he's standing up for eternal lives, are the very reasons he actually lacks it. His idea of what a good Christian is, or what a real Christian is, it's a little bit, it's not right. He needs to fix this. This young ruler does not realize that he does not perfectly keep all the commandments as he was a kid, even though he believes he does. And we struggle with this. Some of us are convinced that we are living our Christian life the way we ought to. But we have to realize that many of us are not. And that mindset needs to change. And I want you to see what Jesus does here. When Jesus, I want you to notice, when Jesus mentions the other six commandments of the Decalogue, the one that have to do with people, notice that he does not say, do not covet. Did you notice that? Do not covet is one of the commandments, but that's not what he says here. Instead, he switches it. He says, do not defraud. Now, that same word to defraud is used in the account that Jesus has with another rich man, Zacchaeus. We're going to be talking about that tonight. But now why? Why does he switch it to do not defraud instead of do not covet? Because this young man's greatest struggle is not coveting. He's rich. He does not have to cover what this poor man says, has. He can get whatever he wants. He can just go on Amazon, or on internet, this is what I want, bloop, 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 bye, ding. And in two days, sometimes next day, boom, it's right at our door. That's the world that we live in. You want something, you get it. In fact, it's so quick that it just, when you want answers from God, guess what you do? Tell me, what do you do? When you, when, when you want an answer about God, or something you're struggling about God, what do you do? What do you ask? Google. Exactly. Google. <laughs> you know what's so crazy about that? If you had a physiological problem, a health problem, who would you ask? Yeah, you would go to Google, then who would you go? A doctor, right? It's not, it's not that hard, right? <laughs> man, I gotta preach more. We, we, gotta, we got a lot of, you got a, got a hard work, man. <laughs> hard work. You go to a doctor, you know what's so crazy about this? When we have a spiritual question, we don't ask pastors. Because we don't trust pastors. And yet, and yet, they have been called by God to shepherd you. Even, quote unquote, trained in school to shepherd you. But we would ask a doctor for a physical problem, but we won't go ask a pastor for spiritual questions or for biblical questions. And the crazy thing is we trust Google. I don't understand. That's crazy. Even when we ask a, a doctor, when we ask a question about health and we go to a Google page, what does it say? This is for information purpose. If you have an issue, go ask your doctor. <laughs> Doesn't it say that? They don't want liability, right? But that's not what we do. Whatever Google says, it's true. It just has to be true. That's, that, that's crazy, but I digress. Sorry, I digress. Gee, this young man's struggle is not covered. In fact, he most likely doesn't even struggle with giving to the poor. Because as a Pharisee, he was required to give to the poor. And in fact, he was probably praised by society because what did Pharisees do? They give it in a public way. Here's 10 bucks, everybody sees me, yeah. We still do that today. I mean, remember all these people that we praise online, right? Like if it's genuine, wow, he gave 100 bucks to the homeless that the whole world now knows. You have to be recorded, right? The same thing as a Pharisee. The world has to see, right? 
that we praise that. Anyways, okay, I digress again, sorry, okay. <laughs> but that's what this, that, that, that's this young man. You know, sorry, I don't have a time limit. I think so. So I'm gonna, <laughs> sorry, bro, you gave me this area, I'm gonna take it, you know. Anyway, we have people that are going online and they cook. You know what I'm talking about, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? These go on a rant and they start cooking online. Saying whatever they want, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, you know, I might be 45, but I have a 16-year-old son, and I'm having an entire college ministry, right? They start cooking, and they're just like saying all these things online because it's a public display. And we just take it. And they just believe all these things. It's so easy online. Because you don't have anybody to question you back or to rebuttal you back. And sometimes they even turn off the comments. Boom. What is that? But that's, that's the world that we live in. That's the world that we live in. Everything is, has to be a public display. I was telling my wife, you know, I was talking to my wife about one of our girls that we ministered in youth group a long time ago. She said, hey, did you know this person was having a lot of issues? And I was like, no, their Instagram page looks amazing. Like, they're so happy. And she was like, well, you see on Instagram, it's not what's happening on your life. And I'm like, wow, why are they lying? <laughs> well, what they do that, you know? But that's what they do. Like, that's what some of you probably do too. This is no app called Be Real. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? I didn't know the name. I, I, I was calling it right now because you take the picture right now. And so my son was so embarrassed of me. Because he's like, nah, it's Be Real. It's not right now. Because it was happening right now. But, but it's supposed to encourage you to be a little bit more real, right? It's still not real. <laughs> Anyways. Jesus is going for the heart here for this man. There's something that is not overt and that is not obvious to this young man. You see, the word defraud in Greek is apostereo. And what that means is to keep that. To keep that for yourself more than you should. See, this young man was not stealing by taking from others what didn't belong to him. He was keeping for himself more than he should. Which is why Jesus tells him in verse 21, for you this is what you gotta do, you gotta give it away. Because this is your struggle. This is your possession. Now we could take this and turn this into like a financial question. In fact, you said, you know what? Amen, brother, you know? But we can go there, but we're not gonna go there because this is more than just finances. We can apply it and it's right to apply it that way. And even though finances can be included in this, that is not all this passage is about. Because there are areas in your life that you're still defrauding God from. Follow me? That you're keeping God back. You're keeping back from God. Other areas in your life where Jesus has to abound so you can become free to abide in Him. You follow me? There are other areas in your life that you're still keeping to yourself, that you need to surrender to Him in order to better experience in this life all the abundant life God has for you. And here's some of the things that we hold back. For those who have kids, not my kids, Lord. I have their life planned out. I know what private school they're gonna go to. I even know what they're gonna be able to, what they have to study. Not my marriage, Lord. 
not my friends and my relationships that might be corrupting my good morals. Are you okay? Like, because she needs some cake. No, okay, okay, I thought she might. Huh? Oh, oh, sorry. Okay. But there are things that you're holding back that you don't want God to intervene in that. You know that dream job that you're waiting for? That dream school? I talk with so many people at our church that they will not come, they will not change the dream school of their life, even if there's no church to go to one day there. Their spiritual life, second place, because it's my dream school. And people, I don't know what it is, they think that just because it's their dream, it's God's dream. It has to be from God, because I've been dreaming about this all my life, and the world deceives you. They say, you know that dream? Even Christians, you know that dream that God put in your life? You know that dream that God put in your mind, that God gave you? That is God telling you what he wants for you. The heart is incredibly deceptive and desperately wicked. And we need to stop listening to our hearts more, and we need to start talking to our hearts more. Understand? We spend so much time listening to ourselves more than listening to God. In scripture, you don't listen to your soul. You talk to your soul. Because you have to constantly speak truth into your soul and speak truth into your life. So that way that desperately wickedness within us can be changed and transformed to align with God. He needs to abide in our life. But forget about all these superficial things. Dream job, dream career, dream school. There are other things that we keep back. Not my bitterness, Lord. Not my hurts. Not my right to feel however I want. Not my right to live the faith, my faith, however I want. As if it was our faith in the first place. This faith that we have, by the grace of God, has been given to us in order for us to believe. He's telling us how to live it so we can experience life. And the question is, what are you still holding on to that is keeping you from fully following Jesus? Like this rich young boy. What is keeping you from abiding in Christ? What is keeping Jesus at bay where he's not abounding in all of your life? Because whatever it is, whatever it is, deep down, it's still making you feel like you're missing something. And we need to get to the root of that. And so... I'm not done with my sermon, but I want to stop for a moment. I'm not done, so don't be too excited. But I want to stop for a moment. Because I want to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to speak to you right now about that. And I just want you to just close your eyes, bow your head. And I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit reveals something to you. All of these things that we're talking about. This is what I want to do. I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, I know that the Holy Spirit for some of you will bring something to mind. And what I want you to do, I want you to write it. Now, if you feel like it's too crazy and you don't want the person sitting next to you to see it, to write it or type it, just remember it. But I want you to keep it in mind. Father, in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, you who live in us and you know us more than we know ourselves, you who know the mind of God and you reveal to us the things of God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will bring into people's mind and remembrance some of the things, or at least one thing, that you're convicting them and calling them to surrender. 
so that way you can abound in all of your life and they can be free to abide in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If something came to mind, keep it or write it or type it. And I'll give you about 10 seconds to do that. surrender more uh, to the Lord. I don't know yet, but I have to pray and dig deep. I feel like the Lord is is really wanting to address some things. But that's what came to mind for me. It was her picture. Oh, I don't know if it's because I miss her. I don't know, maybe. But, but that's what kind of came to mind. So don't ignore it, what came to mind. Write it down, think about it. Maybe the Lord wants to dig a little bit deeper when it comes to that. Anyways, we'll continue in verse 20. And I want you to notice how in verse 20, without giving Jesus a chance to ask him whether he keeps these commandments or not, again, this rich young ruler, without pretense, tells Jesus exactly what he thinks about himself. He says this, all these I have kept since I was a kid. Very typical of Pharisees. You remember that, that, that prayer from that Pharisee who said, thank you God that I'm not like this man. I fast for you, I keep all the commandments. Very stereotypical. In other words, what he's saying is this. Yes, Jesus, I got it. It's a done deal. I've done it all. I haven't held anything back. I am a great Christian. Now, here's where the context of this passage is important. To see the contrast being made here between this young man and the little children coming to Jesus in verses 13 through 16, just before this passage. You see, right before this young man stopped Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus had just finished teaching his disciples to not hinder little children from coming to him. Because to them belongs God's kingdom. And he makes this very famous, very well-known um, phrase where he says that in order to enter into God's kingdom, you've got to receive it like one of these little kids. Now, Jesus is not talking about that kids are completely innocent or sinless. Because every parent here knows. Kids... Oh, they're sinners. <laughs> they're sinful. Sometimes, believe it or not, they can be conniving. They're manipulative. And yes, they don't just sin impulsively. They can plan their sin. I'm telling you, they can. I've caught my daughter with some very intricate planning. I'm like, this girl can be a mobster. I'm like, shot. They are sinners. So that's not what Jesus is talking about here. See, what Jesus means is that we need to receive God's kingdom like a child in order to enter. What he means by that is that we have to come to him as a source and definition of all that is good, as the one that we actually depend on. The Bible defines it as poor in spirit. There is a, a need and a dependence on him who is good for anything that is good over whatever we could offer. We don't come offering what we got and done. We come needing who he is and what he offers. You see, little kids, they need parents or a guardian in order to live, to survive. 
they are dependent on these people, this, this person's love and goodness to care for them. And they are trusting, even if it's blindly, that their parents love them. They love them enough to keep them alive and to thrive in life. They can't survive on their own, even if they look like it, even if they want to. They don't walk around relying on their own possessions. They don't even know what the possession means. You give a two-year-old 10 pennies or three pennies, uh, or a three-year-old 10 pennies or a $100 bill, they will most likely pick 10 pennies. <laughs> because 10 against one, it's obvious, and it's heavier. And it jingles. <laughs> they don't really know the value. They don't really care about that. All they care about, this is the way they live, all they care about deep down is that mom and dad loves them. And that love becomes that kid's greatest possession. They want your hugs, they want your kisses, if that's what you do. They want your time and energy, and they'll fight with you for it, they'll get cranky about it, they'll cry about it, they'll throw a tantrum because of it. Read me a book, put me to sleep, tuck me in. Hybrid is that they receive the love of a parent, they, that becomes their greatest possession. My wife was just telling me that Olivia has been cranky because I'm not there and my wife is busy and my, I, I found out that my daughter Olivia's love language is time. She needs to know that you spend time with her. And when parents are not around, she is really angry. <laughs> she just wants it. That's her greatest possession. If I just have to spend 15, 20 minutes a day with her, she's happy, she's fine. Timothy is touch. And now that he's dating, I'm like, bro, come over here, bro. <laughs> Let's have a talk. But for him, his love language is touch. He just always touching me. And he always wants to be touched. For my daughter, Abigail, is words of affirmation. You don't have to give her anything. You have to spend time with her. She's an introvert. She can be alone in her bedroom listening to music all day. But if you come and you say, I love you and I'm very proud of you, she's like, <laughs> that's, that's my daughter. That, that becomes my kids and children, that becomes their greatest possession, the love of their parents. Don't approach God or life for that matter as if you always know what is best for your life. Let Him who is good dictate what is best for your life. Trust Him. And maybe a little further trust in his love. Now we get to verse 21. And what happens in verse 21 is that you see how it is the very love of Christ that is motivating him to reach out to this young man the way he did. He does. He's confronting this young man because he loves him. And the Bible tells in verse 21 that he looks at him and he loves him. He loves him by being honest about what he lacks and what he needs to surrender in order to inherit eternal life. Jesus tells him the truth because he loves him. In short, this is what he's telling this young man. Look, I know you think you know it all. I know you think you have it figured out. I know that you really think that you know what's best for you in light of eternity. But all of your efforts, all of your knowledge, all of your plans are not good enough unless you're following me. They are meaningless 
without me. That's what he's confronting this young man with. He's making this statement to this young man, I love you more than you will ever love yourself. God loves you more than you will ever love yourself. Do you trust that? Do you trust him? Let me give you some comparison, and I'll give you some, I have to, I maybe have to preface this. Okay, parents, immigrant parents, parents that come from another country that are not from this country, their life is hard. I've been ministering in an Asian context for 23 years. I've seen kids since they were young, and their parents work 12, 14 hours a day in their business. Why do they, why do, they do that? Because they what? They love you, right? They're trying to give you a better life than they have, right? My mom worked three jobs. We still got evicted and <laughs> we're thrown in the streets. And that was a very difficult time. But was she doing that? She was just trying to put food on the table. And that came with good things, it came with bad things. Your parents maybe was not there around the time. You know they were not there around, they were yelling at you, get good grades. You better play that violin and do that piano for four, four or five hours a day, and you're just kind of crazy, and you're like, I hate my life. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And I used to get into, you know, at the end, like, a lot of these elders and elderesses, they saw and really, I really loved their kids, which is why they really entrusted me with their kids. But I got into so much fight with some of the elders at, at our Korean church, because this is what they would do. The kids do really amazing in the Lord in middle school. They're praying, reading the Bible, crying out, we're spending time, they're getting disciple. When they hit high school, it's like, forget church, forget Jesus, forget about God, you gotta just study. You just gotta get into the best school. And then their spiritual life declines. And this is what they would do. They would call me in the middle, like after the service, and they would hand me an envelope with two or three hundred dollars. And they would say, can you please spend more time with my kid and change it because he's not doing good spiritually. Because they wanted like, they really, they realized, oh shoot, this is not working. And now they're like, they don't want to know about God, they don't want to know about know Jesus, and they, in a sense, regret what they did. And I had to tell an elder, I mean, I will never forget, we were by the dumpster, because I was throwing the trash away. And he just followed me through the dumpster. And he's like, he tells me, please, can and I get, I, I know what, I know their heart, they're trying to do anything they can to keep their kid in the Lord. But they, they took them out. And I told them, but that means elder. Changnoni means elder. I said, Changnoni. No, I'm just being loving like a giant. And I said, he was doing well spiritually, and now you think that $200 is going to fix it. It's not going to fix it. You should have let him seek the Lord instead of putting all of those things first. And I remember him, he didn't cry, but he was like, he was holding him back. He's like, I know, but please. 
I'm saying this because I know that a lot of the things that you do is because you want to honor your parents. You want to show them that their sacrifice was not in vain. You want to show them that you made a name for yourself, that you got a good job, that you did well, because you wanted to be proud. And you know they want that too, and I get that, but I want you to take a different perspective, because you want their sacrifice to be worth it, and to be honest, they want their sacrifice to be worth it. Because once they retire, you're the retirement plan. <laughs> and that's okay, that's biblical. <laughs> you're supposed to take care of your parents. That is biblical. But I want you to take a, a different perspective. In the same way that for some of you, you have taken that sacrifice seriously, you're trying to make the best of your life for them, don't forget that you have a heavenly father that sacrificed more than what your parents could ever sacrifice. He sacrificed his son. And in light of what your heavenly father sacrificed, he wants you to not waste your life to honor him more than anything. Don't forget that your Heavenly Father knows what's best for you. And there needs to be a shifting of thinking of your worldview that begins to honor God the way He is worthy of. Because that's what ultimately is going to bring you life and purpose and meaning. Jesus, you know, when Mark is writing what Peter's kind of telling him and like and, and just kind of writing kind of this account of like Jesus loving him do you know did you know that Jesus did not say I love you did you how do you how do how did they know that Jesus loved him in verse 20 how, how did they know that because Jesus did not say I love you but they wrote it you know why because they saw it They saw it clearly in Jesus' eyes. They, saw, they heard it clearly in Jesus' tone of voice. There was no doubt in the mind of the disciples that Jesus was loving that young man right there. It was so palpable that even though Jesus did not say, I love you, they had to write about it. They had to pause and say, and Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Jesus loves you and confronts you with the truth because eternity is at stake. Your life is at stake. And he's going to pause like a mad truck against a beetle because he loves you. He's stopping this man on his track. Jesus is motivated by love to tell him the truth. Your greatest possession for you, it's your riches. Don't defraud me. Don't hold it back. Give it away to the poor or they will end up possessing your life instead. He's getting at the heart of the matter. And they're hindering you from following me. They're hindering you from abiding in me because they are about more in your life than I do. And that's not what God wants for you, your heavenly Father. He wants more for you. What is your treasure possession? What is that one thing that you just can't like, or it doesn't have to be necessarily material, superficial, maybe something deep down inside. Because the longer you hold on to it, the more it will possess you. And hinder you from experiencing everything that God has in store for you. 
see, the love of God never changes, but what we do does influence the way we experience that love. We want to abide in Christ, but we got to let him about in our life. So where does this, where does Jesus want this rich young ruler to follow him? As we learned from the beginning. Because it's the same place he wants you to follow him. Remember where Jesus is heading? To Jerusalem. To the cross. And not only to the cross, because a lot of people end there. The reason why Jesus wants you to follow him to the cross is because after the cross and his death come what? Resurrection. You can't enjoy the power of the resurrection if you're not willing to find fellowship with him and his sufferings. After the cross comes resurrection. We have to follow him to the cross because after that there's resurrection. There's life. Life eternal. Life eternal. So unless you pick up your cross and follow him, unless your life is crucified with Christ, you're not fully following him. You want that resurrection power? You've got to follow him to the cross. If you are to grow and, and, and if you have to grow in abiding in Jesus, you have to also learn to let all of him abound in all of you. This is how we fellowship with him as well. Making him your greatest treasure, your greatest possession. Now up until this point, and I'm gonna and soon up until this point, without knowing how the conversation ends, you're left wondering how this rich young ruler is going to respond to Jesus and to Jesus' request and question, will he accept or will he reject? And of course, verse 22 tells us what this rich young ruler does. It tells us in the passage that he doesn't follow after Jesus and that in fact, Jesus' teaching didn't make him feel that good either. In verse 22, the passage is like this. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now the young man rejected Jesus, and he left despondent, discouraged, dejected, unhappy. And this is why, and some of you might feel this way, because the kind of life he wanted for himself, and the kind of life Jesus wanted for him, did not agree. He said, what you want for me, and what I want for me, ain't the same. And I don't want what you want from me. I want what I want from me. And so he's sad because he understands that eternity is at stake, but right now he can't see eternity, he sees his life now. And he would get what he believes is best for himself than what Jesus is telling him what's best for him. And some of you might be at that crossroad right now where you have to make a decision, who am I gonna follow, what I want or what Jesus wants? And this man is, he left feeling this way. He left feeling this way. This young man would rather hold on to the temporary life we'll live in the eyes of the world and to give it away for an eternal life with the eternal God. We do the same. And if Jesus needed to give up his entire life on the cross in order to give us eternal life, then we also need to surrender our life now in order to receive eternal life in the others. Now this young man, he, this young man could have responded to the treasure Jesus was offering. Like the man who found the treasure hidden in the field, remember? Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. 
who joyfully sells everything he has in order to keep the treasure he found. Passage says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Notice that both found the greatest treasure and both had equal opportunity to seize it, seize it and experience joy. But only one ends rejoicing, the other one ends in greater sorrow. Now Jesus knew that this young man was going to leave feeling this way but he still motivated by love, confronts him with the truth, even though he knew it was going to cause him to feel this way and leave this way. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't try to make him feel better after. He doesn't go run after him and be like, I'm sorry, you, you, I, I hurt your feelings. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you got angry and disheartened. He doesn't do that. He lets him go. Because he already proved and showed he loved him. He doesn't run after him, even though, and even though he knew it was going to make him feel this way, he still addresses it. He still does it. The question is why? Because Jesus was after a word that we don't like. Repentance. See, the sorrow that Jesus was causing this young man to feel was meant to lead him to repentance. And the very opportunity to repent and follow him was his love and kindness towards him. See, godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7.10, and God's kindness, Romans 2.4, are meant to lead us to repentance. There are two sides of the same coin of repentance. See, the godly sorrow he causes us to experience draws us away from what's hindering our relationship with Jesus. And the kindness he displays in doing that in us draws us in towards him. He does not have to pursue you, but he does. He does not have to cause you to repent, but he does. He does not have to confront you with the truth so you can experience that. He doesn't have to do it, but he does. Because he wants you to abide in him. And he wants, and he wants to abide in you. Repentance is God's gift to us because it is the means, it is the means by which we are reconciled in relationship with Him. And this is not the only time Jesus causes. This is not an isolated event. It's not the only time Jesus causes grief. Yes, grief in someone in order to restore them back to Him. Do you remember John chapter twenty-one, verse seventeen? When Jesus confronts Peter, Peter just denied Jesus. And he confronts him in chapter 17 with what he has done. And in verse 17, he says this. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The Bible says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Paul is also shepherding the church, motivated by love, causing grief in the church and sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 10. It says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you. You see the tension here? I don't want to make you sad. But he says later, but it was just for a while. And he says, as it is, I rejoice. Okay, I'm glad that you got sad. <laughs> not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, being reconciled with God again. 
For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whilst worldly grief produces death. We have to remember that not everything that makes us feel happy or that works out just the way we want is from God. And not everything that makes us feel sad or that are difficult in life are from the world or from the devil. We have to remember that. And we, we live in a day right now that if a pastor preaches something and it makes you feel sad, you leave. <laughs> that if they confront you with the truth and they're not listening first to you, and really being in tune with your feelings, you don't like it and you get angry at them. And sometimes the Lord has to deal with you in ways that causes you that sorrow and he leaves you dealing with it. Like the way he's leaving this rich young ruler. Because sometimes we need to realize, sometimes we need to realize the state that we are in. And we need to understand that. And Jesus does not shy away from that. See, feelings are true and they are real. They must never be ignored, but we have to remember that they are not truth. They are true because we're feeling them, but they're not truth. Feelings come and go and they're subject to our external circumstances, but truth is steadfast. And Jesus is going to always confront you with the truth. Many times God will confront us with the truth about ourselves because He loves us. And he's protecting us from becoming possessed by our own possessions. He's protecting us from continuing to grow and being possessed. When he confronts us with the truth about our heart, it will cause us to grieve many times. But when we learn to see it as his relentless pursuit for our heart and for our good, that kind of him always coming back again and again compels us to come back to him. And when he abounds, we abide. Follow me? So the question is this, and I'm closing. Which means a bank can come. <laughs> what are you going to do today? How would you respond? Treasure is being offered to you. God, Jesus is confronting you, you with the truth. He loves you more than you can ever love yourself. And you do have a choice before the Lord. Will you respond like the rich young ruler and still leave sad? Or will you respond like that man who found a treasure and sold everything he had to gain the whole field? Because he wanted all the kingdom had to offer. Now it might take you more than just today to really let go. I should most likely you will. Because what happens often in retreats is that after Sunday comes Monday. You will have an amazing time today, tonight, tomorrow, Sunday, and then Monday you go back to the grind, to work, to school, and you're confronted with everything the world has to offer. You're like, oh shoot, what do I do? <laughs> this is hard. And it will feel impossible. But it doesn't mean we can't be resolved. It doesn't mean we can't decide in faith and really trust the Lord to make him our greatest possession. If you step in faith and you trust him, he will give you the strength to overcome. And not only will he give you the strength to overcome, he's ready to forgive and to restore even when you will fail. Because you will. 
You might feel even mundane. Could you come back to him? As I said yesterday, come back to the Father. Because your strength can only be found in him. Your strength can only be found in him. So as band leads us to worship, uh, in worship, I am going to close in prayer. And I know I can say more, I can do more, but I know that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. In fact, before this retreat even, retreat even started, the Holy Spirit has been working. We're just joining in what He's doing. So I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to worship, and that is going to lead us in worship. And as we worship, I want you to be thinking about what we talked about on the sermon. But I want you to worship, and I want you to pray. Come before the Lord. 